Welcome to OnSpec, the podcast that brings you big little documentaries from far corners of the world. I'm Nadine Gori, your host. Over the next few weeks, we will bring you OnSpec Season 4, six outstanding global documentaries that explore the theme of walls and borders. We go to France, Peru and Zambia, the Mediterranean Sea, the disputed border of Armenia and Azerbaijan, and the frontier between the United States and Mexico. We'll explore how borders shape global issues like climate change, migration, war and economic disparity. And we will bring you compelling stories of people fighting walls both real and imagined, those within their own society and even within their own families. But in this especially extended episode, we take you to the French port city of Calais a city at the heart of a massive security infrastructure program meant to keep refugees and migrants from crossing the English Channel into the United Kingdom. Over the past 20 years, French and British authorities have spent hundreds of millions of pounds on walls, fences, different types of cameras, more police and security agents to keep people away from their shores. Yet it's not working. Still, the migrants come, attempting to make the crossing from Calais to the United Kingdom. Margot Ben and Judith Chetrit report from the ground, shedding new light on this corner of Fortress Europe. Here we are in Calais, France, right up north at the closest point on the mainland to England. The English city of Dover is only about 33 kilometers across the English Channel. Calais is a quaint little coastal city. It doesn't ooze charm like some other French towns. It's one of those grey, rapidly industrialized cities where modern apartment blocks have mushroomed next to much older houses, forming haphazard series of buildings. But the town centre has a beautiful cathedral, a grand theatre, and because it's nearing Christmas, its parks and squares are dotted with very kitsch and very big statues of Santa Claus and teddy bears. On the outskirts of town, though, there are no decorations, no theatre and no Christmas market. As we near the port, the houses become more and more modest. The only shop you can find is a large discount supermarket. As we turn a corner, the asphalt road ends. We discover a vast wasteland lined with a forest area. Around the muddy puddles are little groups of tents with clothes drying on them, a young man's brushing his teeth outside. As we make our way through the open field, we come across Mohammed and Iseka. They're from Darfur, a conflict-ridden region in western Sudan. They're tall and lanky, but have childish features. No, I am not old man. I am young. I am young, 15. The teenagers tell us that they've just come from Transmark, a nearby area on the other side of the field. It's a place where truck drivers from across Europe can stop for a few hours and take a break in private parking lots. Many young migrants head there on a daily basis in the hope of boarding a truck, hoping it will take them to the United Kingdom. A few weeks before we came to Calais, a young Sudanese man was fatally hit by a truck as he tried to jump onto it. 
Transmark is a long stretch of road that forms an angle with a big roundabout. And along this road are open-air parking lots, each with its own warehouse or little shop or cafe. Each lot is surrounded by metal fences topped with barbed wire, a special type of barbed wire called concertina, known for being particularly sharp and harmful for whomever might try to climb over it. An endless ballet of trucks comes and goes around the roundabout. The parking lot's gates open and close mechanically. There are also many uh, security cameras on the walls of some kind of warehouse. Um, I think it might be a warehouse or, or some kind of building or parking lot. And near the gates, I mean, everyone is looking at... I mean, it's impossible um, to do anything here and not be seen. The largest lot, down the road after the curve, is called C4T. It has a big cafe right in the middle. We soon spot small figures all around, in ditches and behind piles of cement blocks, and even inside a kind of garbage dump. They're teenagers like Mohammed and Iseka, waiting to jump onto a moving truck, which they hope will take them to the UK. Each little group forms a line. The boys take turns going for the big jump. When a truck comes out of C4T's automatic gates and it's driving slowly enough, the first in line tries his luck. We decide to pay C4T a visit. We have 310 parking places um, available. Stuart Madden is the chief operating officer of the parking. After a successful career in the oil industry, he bought this lot back in 2015, along with a colleague of his. There was a big problem in the dunes area of Calais, which is used to be nicknamed Gasoline Alley, because there were lots of uh, fueling facilities in that area for trucks. Of course, they were completely open and exposed um, uh, to, to migrant activity. So the drivers would go there, try and fuel. The migrants would attempt to get on board the vehicles while the drivers were refueling. So we saw an opportunity to develop the business here because we could offer drivers a secure location in which they can fuel. Now, private parkings like C4T have multiplied around the port. Stuart Madden and his colleague were among the first to spot the opportunity, but now it has become a booming business. If people are caught hiding illegally on a truck, at the port or at the ferry departure point, both the driver and the transport company should each pay a hefty fine, which reports say can amount to £2,000. And if a person is found inside a lorry transporting produce, then because of sanitary rules, all the produce needs to be thrown away, which means a huge waste of food, but also a waste of money for the produce company and a bad rep for the transport company. Basically, it's bad news all around. That's why parking lots like C4T have become so popular and even offer searching services so that drivers are 100% sure they leave the parking with no one unexpected on board. Other companies propose to check vehicles right before they reach the port's transit area, just in case a person may have jumped onto the truck on the way from the parking lot. When we bought the site, um, there was some basic uh, CCTV cameras in place. Um, there was uh, a fence surrounding the site. Uh, and that was pretty much uh, it. 
Um, since then, uh, we've had to reinforce uh, the fence line with um, three rows of concertina barbed wire. Uh, we've also uh, completely replaced the lighting around the perimeter. So the previous lighting was um, uh, traditional uh, sort of lighting. We've now got gone to much brighter uh, lux uh, or LED, which provides a much higher level of uh, lighting around the perimeter. Uh, and we also have uh, motion uh, detection infrared cameras all along the perimeter. So if a migrant approaches the perimeter fence, it triggers an alarm here in the control room. Uh, so we immediately know which zone of the fence the migrants are approaching. Uh, and we can then contact the security guards that are patrolling the site and direct them to that part of the fence line to deter the migrants from attempting to cut the fence and get in. Just to have um, like a, an overview, um, like what would be your security budget? Well, the replacement of all the lighting and the installation of the um, uh, infrared motion detection perimeter cameras. Um, that project was uh, half a million euros and the security guards would be and is our largest um, single operational cost. I would say it, it costs us several hundred thousand euros a year. The police don't patrol in private parking lots like C4T, so they're replaced by security agents employed by companies. They also use dogs trained to recognize the smell of human beings. We actually are currently in the process of uh, switching suppliers. Uh, the security guards will now be provided with um, body cameras. Um, they also have a, um, a tracking device so we can actually see where they're patrolling. They also have um, uh, the equipment they were being provided was a little bit better in terms of stab proof vests uh, because unfortunately we are increasingly seeing migrants carrying uh, offensive weapons such as knives and so forth, uh, which we wouldn't have seen you know, five years ago. But the body cams are also a way to keep an eye on the security guards themselves and a way to prove or contest any accusation of wrongdoing. We have had a situation in, in the past where um, there was a, um, an accusation that a security guard had uh, behaved inappropriate towards a migrant. Uh, that caused us some huge issues because we then had um, large groups of migrants basically um, converging on the site and trying to uh, basically penetrate the perimeter, um, not with the intention of getting on board uh, the trucks, but actually with the sole intention of um, seeking revenge on that particular security guard. Um, that situation got very heated over a number of days. Um, I ended up uh, having uh, basically going and meeting a group of migrants, finding someone that spoke English and said, look, um, that security guard that was involved um, is no longer working on the premises um, and that we need to calm the situation down because otherwise someone is going to get hurt, either a security guard or or migrants and we just need to calm it all down um, and as a result of that actually thankfully the situation did diffuse and, and we didn't have that problem again uh, but that is one of the reasons why we want to be able to um, uh, have these body cams because it just gives us also a more comfort that the security guards will behave in an appropriate 
manner as well. Stuart Madden doesn't have any bone to pick with migrants. In fact, he tells us he's in awe of their bravery and resilience, crossing countless countries, surmounting at times life-threatening obstacles to pursue their dreams of a better life. He gets that. He just wants to provide truck drivers with a safe place to rest during their own lengthy trips across Europe. But what he doesn't know is that ever since the incident he evoked, and possibly other instances of violence which migrants have reported to NGOs, these young men have nicknamed C4T Shaitan Parking. Shaitan means the devil in Arabic. <laughs> Is it okay if I record the conversation? Yeah, I have no problem. This is Ahmed, a young Sudanese man who comes from a conflict-ridden region of Western Sudan. He asked us not to use his real name. I come from Darfur and I'm 23 years old. He spent four months in Calais and at last reached the UK a couple of months ago by boarding a small boat and making the perilous journey across the channel. It was my first day in Calais. I went there and I faced some friends and they told me where people go and how they enter trucks, like how to know this truck is going to UK or to going to another country. And so we decided to, to go inside the park, not to wait the truck outside. The parking lot which Ahmed and his friends chose was none other than C4T. The incident Stuart Madden evoked is most likely the one involving Ahmed. We found like a small hole leading inside the parking. Like there was a small hole in a fence and you went through? Yeah, yes, exactly. And then we went through and when we are inside, everyone everyone looking for the truck and everyone took the truck. Me personally, I took the first truck from the left. But then he heard the footsteps of security agents outside. And then they start searching truck after truck, truck after truck, and then until they come to, the, my, to my truck. And so they found me and they let, let me down tell me like calm down calm down and when i came down they put me between two trucks in a dark place and i think they want to hide me from the cameras and after that they started hey sit down i sat down and they have three dogs and they are three securities and they start asking me why you are here and i just told them like like everyone coming here, I want to go to UK. And so after that, some of the person in my left kicked me in my face with, with his left leg, left foot. So, and then they used, they start using the dogs. They let the dog without mask and... Here, Ahmed means that at least one of the dogs wasn't equipped with a muzzle. When the dog is about to catch me, they uh, pull the dogs back. They make me feel fear. And I don't know what's happening really at that time. And when I am going out to the, to the, to the door, so to the gate of the parking, so they, one of them, again, he kicked me 
in my neck and I start I start walking until I reach the door, the gate, and I'm out. This violence happens away from NGO watchdogs and their cameras, and often at night when most young men attempt to jump onto trucks. When he finally reached his tent, Ahmed was in shock. He had injuries to his neck and his face was bloodied. So he picked up his phone and called an NGO called Utopia 56, and soon volunteers rushed him to the hospital. On our way back from Transmark, we cross a middle-aged man carrying a plastic bag. He's coming from the discount supermarket and heading back to the parking. What's your name, sir? My name is Nico White. I'm working on the Bulgarian uh, transport uh, company. So a lot of driving. Mm, lot, lots. I learn uh, English on the street. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Nikolai explains that his main worry when driving through northern France is that a migrant will hop onto his truck without him noticing. As a small group of young men walk nearby, he points at them. This is a big problem. Two times uh, they jump on my truck. When uh, find uh, Taliban's on my truck, uh, this is a big problem for the big money. <laughs> Nikolai tells us of colleagues of his who were caught by the police at the port with people hiding in their trucks. They had to pay a fine. That's why he's so annoyed and rude with the migrants and why he calls them Taliban. For Nikolai, the migrants are the bad guys. As for Ahmed, he wanted justice. So when he got out of the hospital, he got in touch with La Cabane Juridique, which translates roughly as the legal cabin. It offers legal advice to exiled people and accompanies them if they wish to contact the police or submit a complaint. La Cabane Juridique is a small organization. They hold free consultations in a room lent to them by Utopia 56, the NGO that brought Ahmed to the hospital. This is Clara, a 26-year-old volunteer for La Cabane Juridique. She's the one who took up Ahmed's case, and they're still in touch. We receive reports of true ultraviolence, whereby, for instance, a young man is beaten by five security agents at the same time, who kick him in his torso and all over his body with their heavy safety boots. We were also told that video surveillance cameras were sometimes turned off on these parking lots or that security agents track people in between two trucks in order to commit these acts of violence without there being any proof or witnesses. The process of seeking justice is often fraught with its own obstacles. And though Ahmed is hopeful that his case will come through, Clara has her doubts. With reason. Already, when a police officer came to the hospital to write down Ahmed's deposition, the officer treated Ahmed like a suspect rather than a victim and seemed completely uninterested in his story, jotting occasional words down with a pencil. The officer asked many questions about Ahmed's attempts to cross over the UK, which wasn't the topic. The point of the interview was the violence perpetrated against him and which are illegal. We followed up with Clara regularly after we met her in December, and until now, she says she still doesn't have any information on whether Ahmed's complaint was even processed. 
One NGO in Calais is actually working on better documenting these types of violence. HRO, Human Rights Observers, official mandate is to document what they deem is state violence, which ranges from abuses committed by police to instances whereby the authorities prevent NGOs from working. But what happens in private parking lots, for instance, is harder to monitor. If HRO sent volunteers inside parking lots, that would be trespassing. We visited their office, a tiny prefab in a fenced-up area where several NGOs have set up their own little spaces. This is Nancia, a recent law graduate. There are difficulties tied to the context, and particularly because of the Dublin agreements. If a person submits a complaint at the police station, there are chances that the police will take their fingerprints and that they will be Dublinized. This discourages migrants from denouncing any violence they might be subjected to. According to the Dublin Agreement, a person should register and seek asylum in the first European country they enter. Another problem is the slowness of the justice system. Submitting a complaint and waiting for it to be processed is a lengthy process. But exiled people in Calais are here because they wish to go to the UK. So we often begin procedures that don't amount to anything because the plaintiff will have managed to leave France and stopped communicating. And also, it's very difficult to gather all the necessary evidence. Sometimes the victims don't have any medical certificate to attest that they were subjected to violence. The large number of people flocking to northern France and the authorities' response, which seems entirely focused on repression, especially in Calais, has led to great tensions. At dusk and throughout the night on the shores of Calais and other seaside towns, groups of young men, women and children run towards the sea to board small boats set up by people traffickers. They paid thousands of dollars for the journey. In 2021, a record number of 28,000 people arrived in the UK by boarding these small boats. Those who can't afford this, often teenagers from East Africa, like Mohammed, Isika or Ahmed, either keep trying their luck jumping on moving trucks or sneaking into parking lots, or they steal whatever floating device they can find on the beach, even pedal boats and canoes. Last November, 27 people, including young women and children, died while making the perilous journey. We decide to head to the port itself, but beforehand we meet Pierre Menziljean, a young researcher working on the French-British border. In the early 1990s, France and Great Britain adopted the Sanguette Protocol, which allowed the two countries to increase the security apparatus, especially in the newly built Eurotunnel. Exile people began trying out another solution, hiding inside trucks. And then, as the ports of Calais and Dunkirk became inaccessible, people started climbing onto trucks further and further away from the coast. Now there are even people jumping onto trucks all the way in Bourgogne, in central France. It's a game of cat and mouse. Authorities notice that individuals are crossing over in one location and they go all out in terms of police and military presence. So the individuals in question move further away. And since a few months, people have increasingly been crossing the channel in small boats. I believe there is a correlation between the evolution of the security situation in Calais 
and generally along the coastline and the number of wounded people due to the more and more dangerous methods people are forced to resort to in order to get to the UK. In 2003, France and Great Britain further expanded the Songhet Agreement and signed the Touquet Agreement, which granted the UK the right to search and conduct anti-migration operations on French soil. The British Border Force, for instance, is deployed at the port of Calais and works alongside the French Border Police. Since then, Great Britain has given France tens of millions of euros to put in place measures to curb migration or, at least, to prevent migrants from reaching British shores. It has recently pledged to fund more migrant shelters in France and to invest almost 63 million euros between 2021 and 2022 in new surveillance technologies and increased patrolling along the coastline. Pierre draws out some photographs he took during his strolls around the port. All these white fences were conceived so that no one could climb them. The spacing between each bar is too thin for even a child's fingers to fit in between them. And even before reaching this type of infrastructure, on the actual port, in the city, you can see walls topped with extremely sharp, concertina barbed wire protecting industrial sites. You can also see this type of barbed wire all around the port. And authorities have even built fences with barbed wire under bridges so that people can't access these portions of the road. We got an impression of this at the ferry departure point where we met Jean-Marc Puissesseau. He's the CEO and chairman of the ports of Calais and Boulogne, another coastal city in northern France. So here we are um, at the departure point for trucks and cars wishing to board ferries. Everything is huge, massive, uh, massive parking lots, massive spaces for the trucks to wait for the ferries. And on there, there are a few police cars, some civilian cars and um, some security agents that seem to be just passing time and smoking outside. Every day, about 6,000 trucks come through the port of Calais. Do you realize how much that is? Usually you can see thousands and thousands of cars as well. You've been here for only a few minutes, so maybe you don't realize it. But at the end of the day, up to 3,000 trucks will have left the port since this morning. Jean-Marc Fusesseau is a force of nature. At 82 years old, after a full career in business and as the president of the Regional Chamber of Commerce and Industry, he went on to be re-elected last year as the head of the ports of Calais and Boulogne. He just completed a full restructuring and expansion of the port, which he says is the achievement of a lifetime. There's a road in between the sea and the port. We built a wall there. It's about four meters high to discourage migrants from trying to access the port when the tide is low. And even if they manage to access the port, they're quickly spotted by the CCTV camera. The port is equipped with some 200 video surveillance cameras. Buses and coaches have their own control line. Over there, you can see the French customs, and also the French police, and the border police. They use a system called PARAF, just like what you see in airports. And then you have the British. And when people are found inside a truck, where are they kept before the police arrive? When people are found inside a truck, we call the French border police. But in the meantime, where are they kept? 
When a truck is thought to have migrants inside, it's sent to a kind of warehouse. That's where the French border police will assist with checking the truck. The border police climbs into the truck because the port employees aren't allowed to. And then, if people are found inside the truck, they're taken outside the port by the border police. The French border police, the British border force and private security firms use increasingly sophisticated technology to detect human presence inside trucks. On top of using specially trained dogs, they're now equipped with heartbeat detectors and carbon dioxide probes. Heartbeat detectors can be placed on the undercarriage. And it may sound strange, but the little gadgets placed under the frame of a truck can recognize a hot beating. When do you use carbon dioxide probes instead of heartbeat detectors? In the case of sheeted trucks, those with the back covers with tarpaulin, we use the carbon dioxide probes. And if the back of the truck is rigid, or if it's a tanker truck, then it's checked with a heartbeat detector. According to the British government, between 2015 and 2017, enhanced security at the ports in northern France meant that attempts to travel illegally to England dropped from about 80,000 to 30,000. But since then, numbers have remained stable. We're back on Skype, this time to speak to Kevin Saunders, the former head of the border force in Calais. He's retired and lives in the UK where he still works part-time as a consultant for different organizations. What we have in Calais is we have a UK control zone. So to, to, to run our controls, we had a little bit of England in France and that entitled us to um, physically search the lorries with, with people. Um, and we could employ French contractors to search the lorries and to get into the lorries within our UK zone. The company that we were working with was called ECS, Eamon mm -hmm. Cork Solutions. Emus Cork Solutions is a French company founded by a former cop from the French border police with friends in high places, namely former President Nicolas Sarkozy. The company is directly subcontracted by the UK Home Office and boasts 350 employees. Emus Cork employees and members of the Border Force work with body detection dogs to detect illegal migrants inside trucks. And these dogs are provided by another private firm, Wagtail. Many of its dog handlers have a military background with service in conflict zones such as Afghanistan, Iraq and the Balkans. We tried asking current and former employees of Emus Cork for interviews and reached out to their CEO and other senior managers. We'd heard about abuses allegedly committed by their security agents, but they all refused to comment. Managers cited confidentiality agreements signed with the UK Home Office. Former employees we'd contacted on social media went as far as telling Emus Cork we were looking into the company. Well, the advantage is that the private companies are there um, all the time. They're not going to have problems with, um, with, with delays coming across the channel. Um, we, would, we were deploying people um, every day. Um, we were spending a small fortune with um, Eurotunnel to get our people out every day to France. So to have the local people on the ground was um, a very good idea. When we found the migrants in the lorries, 
uh, we would get them out of the lorries. Um, we would we would we would search the lorries to our our satisfaction. We would get them out. We would hand them over to ECS. ECS would then look after them until we had, we notified the path that they were ready for collection. While they're being checked by the border force and security agents from the private firm Emist Cork Solutions, the migrants are held in places called short-term holding facilities, discreetly set up behind prefab offices and away from the freight lanes. These facilities are also private ventures, mainly from the giant MITI. The company MITI, which is subcontracted by the UK Home Office, just like Emist Cork and Wagtail, is the main provider of detention infrastructure in the UK. And because of the 2K agreement, they're allowed to build their own on French soil. British independent authorities sometimes conducted inspections in these facilities. They checked the numbers, they checked the, the accommodation, they checked the food that the migrants were being given, um, they, they, the, the amount of the, the length of time they were kept in, in detention. Saunders tells us that these always went smoothly, but Judith, the co-producer of this report, did some digging. And what she found is much more concerning. One inspection report, for instance, noted serious issues, including weak safeguarding of children at holding facilities in northern France, including the one near the Calais freight lanes. I've been confronted to this issue of migration ever since I became president of the port, and nothing has changed. That's Jean-Marc Puissesseau again, the head of the port of Calais. He estimates that the company running the port has spent no less than 40 million euros on anti-migration security measures since 2015. Like building tall fences and placing cameras all around. These things aren't paid for by the British or French governments. So in 2021, he began a legal procedure asking the French state to reimburse the company. I believe we should work towards not having one single migrant on the Opal Coast. We should bring those who are here to special centers where they can benefit from guidance dispensed not only by France, but also by European bodies, because this is a European and British problem. If we set up orientation centers, training centers, places where people explain to them their rights, and perhaps explain to them whether they can find a job in the UK according to their academic background, work experience and so on, and these places could also teach them the French language, I think that would be a solution. In the city of Calais alone, there are usually between 1,000 and 1,500 migrants waiting to cross over to the UK. And to this day, they can only rely on the help provided by volunteers and humanitarian organizations. We're in a field behind a shopping complex on the outskirts of Calais. The buzzing sound you hear comes from a bunch of generators. The Secours Catholique and other NGOs periodically organize phone charging sessions so that the young men can always be connected with each other, with their families at home, and with local organizations if needed. My name's Anna. Um, I'm English, but I've been living in France for a long time. I, did, I worked in France. And now I'm retired, so I spend time at the Secours Catholique, Caritas. Anna is a small woman, in her 60s, with a kind face, who used to be a schoolteacher. 
She still has plenty of energy and volunteers several times a week despite the biting cold. I also help at the day centre, uh, mostly doing sewing, repairing um, torn clothes. Why are the clothes so torn? The jackets mostly are torn under the arms because they've made big movements, perhaps running away from people or climbing over obstacles. And there are lots of tears, uh, which either in their trousers or their jackets, which come from barbed wire or other sharp objects like that. We see them with injuries, so one of our jobs when we're out in the field like this is to send them to the hospital. So we see people with bandages on their hands, on their legs, and also damaged clothes. Yeah. It used to be quite pleasant, it's just fences. Fences and they've cut down all the trees, so you go past these, it looks like a prison state. Each year, the French state spends 178 million euros on anti-migration operations and infrastructure on the northern coastline. At this stage, we realize how most people in Calais, NGO workers like Clara and Nancia, humanitarians like Anna, the CEO of the port, Mr. Prisoso, Stuart Madden from C4T Parking, all come to the same conclusion. What's the point of spending millions of euros belonging to the French state and millions of pounds of British taxpayer money to transform Calais into an ultra-secure, fenced-up fortress, when it doesn't actually curb migration, but just pushes the migrants away to different locations, even all the way to Belgium? Sonia Creamy wanted to find out more about how this money is spent. She's a member of the French Parliament and was a member of a parliamentary commission that wrote a lengthy report on the subject published in November 2021. Creamy and her team attempted to quantify exactly what the amount spent represented and how much money the UK allotted to different French institutions for the securization of the French northern coast. I didn't have any contact with our British counterparts. The only information I was able to access was information which we, at the French National Assembly, were able to find, mainly because it was in the public domain. But what I can tell you is that around 40 million euros were spent for the year 2020. And we, on our end, always ask for more. Some members of the French authorities complained off the record about France carrying out the bulk of rescue missions at sea. She told us she was even more taken aback with how British taxpayer money is being distributed. As far as her team was able to know, there's no auditing system, and the whole process is particularly obscure. Local administrations don't speak with the state. The state doesn't speak with NGOs. The dialogue with the UK is what it is, with its ups and downs. We wrote up an entire Brexit plan that's thousands of pages long and simply forgot to mention immigration. In 2020, the UK appointed a clandestine channel threat commander. His role and impact are yet to be detailed, and when we asked his office for an interview, we were merely offered a statement, which we never received. The subject is a hot topic among British politicians. Some have proposed far-fetched solutions to the issue of migration, 
Leaked documents in a now-deleted tweet by the Ghanaian government implied in 2020 that the British government was drawing up plans to send migrants who reached the UK to offshore processing centers in Africa while their asylum claim was being processed. Last autumn, the border force carried out pushback drills using jet skis to divert dinghies in the channel. 178 million. Militarisation, le coup de la répression. Cet argent là tue, laisse des mômes à la rue. En été, en hiver et au pied Louise des barrières. Louise is a local artist who moonlights as a politician. At 29 years old, she's a member of the city council. She read this slam poem, which she wrote, at a council meeting shortly after the tragedy in the English Channel, in which 27 people died last November. À ce silence de mort, on est habitué. Sortant les rescapés des sombres eaux glacées, mais le matin d'après sont de nouveau chassés. Vraiment, n'y a-t-il rien à faire que la mort pour briser leur détermination? In Calais, France, I'm Margot Ben, reporting with Judith Chetrit on Spec. The OnSpec team who brought you this report, Judith and Margot, faced a great deal of mistrust from many of the companies working in Calais. The interviews you just heard were extremely difficult to obtain. Margot says that as a French citizen, she was inspired to do the story because she spent the past 10 years reporting from overseas, often investigating private militia or companies carrying out human rights abuses in different countries. But when she and Judith learned about the growing privatization of security in Calais, a story much closer to home for them, they felt it needed to be told. And their report is certainly timely. Between 2022 and 2023, this coming year, the British Home Office is set to renew several of these contracts and has already launched procurement processes. The whole affair represents more than £150 million. But in the same year that the world sees even more refugees fleeing from Afghanistan and now the war in Ukraine, can any amount of money ever stop the desperate seeking refuge and a better life? This season was supported by grants from the European Journalism Centre. Join us in one week for an Instagram Live discussion with Margot and Judith, where we will discuss what they saw and heard on the ground. Episode 2 of our season airs on the 19th of March and continues the theme of migration, this time from the waters of Italy. It's the untold story of how a spy on board an NGO rescue boat has led to some human rights activists facing criminal charges of human trafficking. You've been listening to OnSpec.